Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest for the first half hour is Eddie Gabor. He is the co-owner of Key Advisors Group based in Delaware. Welcome to the show, Eddie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So let's just start with a little bit of your background uh, and how you founded this firm and what kind of clients you deal with. Well, I've been a wealth advisor for 17 years. Uh, My business partner and I started Key Advisors Group on December 1st of 2000. So we just celebrated our 15th year in business, which we're very proud of. And the majority of our clientele are retired or approaching retirement. Uh, Age, say, 55 and older is really the area that we mainly focus on. And our clientele have a little bit of a more conservative approach to their investment strategy simply because of the fact that they've accumulated a majority of the wealth that they will have, and they're really looking for strategies to you know, provide income, protect wealth, yet still try to find a way to get some growth without taking too much risk. And tell people about what your website is and what can they find at your website. So our website is www.keyadvisorsgroupllc.com. And on our website, we try to keep it uh, up-to-date frequently. You can see our entire team. Uh, There's some videos. There's also our website. Obviously, within the website, you can contact us through our email address, phone number. So uh, it's a very educational website for folks to visit. So what are the key questions that uh, your your clients, kind of retiree or pre-retiree who want income, what are the key questions they're asking you these days? Well, you know, the, the biggest question, truthfully, and I think this is probably across the board with everyone, is the, uh, you know, the hot topic right now is the Fed and interest rates and how that will affect their investments, how that will affect the stock market. seems to be the biggest topic question that we get as well as concern as well, too. So what are you, the Fed's meeting this coming Wednesday. Uh, what do you think they're going to do? I really think that they'll finally go ahead and raise rates. I think they'll only raise rates by 25 basis points. I think it's important that they do raise rates this meeting. Um, I think they'll do more harm than good to the economy if they continue to delay the inevitable of raising interest rates. So I think it will be healthy, and I think the market will uh, recognize it as a positive move that the economy is strong enough to handle a 25 basis point rate hike. So why is it necessary to raise interest rates after they've been keeping it at zero pretty much for seven years? Well, you know, there's two main components, uh, and I think sometimes they get overlooked on why raising, you know, everything, the sentiment seems to be pretty negative anytime you hear about raising interest rates. But there's two main things to remember in a raising interest rate market environment. First off, we haven't had a raise in nine years. We've had zero interest rates for almost seven years. And there's a tremendous amount of retirees across the country that rely on bank accounts, CDs, money market as part of their portfolio. Well, if you start to raise interest rates, you're going to put more money in the client's pocket because they're going to get increased income on their portfolio. So that's number one on why it will be a positive for the average American. Secondly, the big risk that you have right now with a low interest rate market environment is with the slow recovery that we've had, businesses are healthier than they've been in the last few years, and they have started to take on a tremendous amount of debt. Anytime you have a free money environment, most people will carry on more debt than they normally would. So raising interest rates will tame the amount of debt that these companies are taking on. And why that's so important is that's how bubbles form and you have these big collapses. It wasn't too long ago in 2008 when we had a very similar crisis 
from the debt perspective of the amount of debt that households and businesses were t- taking on. It was a very loose money policy time period. And so the Fed has to get ahead of this thing and start to raise rates so that way corporations become more prudent with how much debt they take on so they can afford to pay their bills, basically. So on the, your first point, do you think that banks are actually going to raise the rates they're paying on CDs, money market fund savings accounts, in any significant way if rates go up? Well, I mean, the fact of the matter is, unfortunately, to use the word significant when we're only talking about a 25 basis point rate hike, uh, I don't think that would be significant move, but it's a start. We have to start somewhere. So I do think rates will start to rise, but again, it's only 25 basis points. And so when you're going from zero to 25 basis points, you know, on a percentage basis, it's big, but the reality as far as extra money in someone's pocket is not a very big number. But again, we have to start somewhere. And then on your second point, if uh, all these companies that have taken on debt, as you say, kind of a free uh, money environment, um, and rates start rising, could that mean that defaults are going to go up? And we've seen a tremendous amount of stress in the junk bond market already, for example. Will that stress of higher rates cause more defaults and uh, problems in the uh, corporate bond market? Well, it certainly, I think, long-term, it could, depending upon how aggressive the Fed raises rates. Again, we're talking about a very small interest rate hike. Now, to get to your point in reference to the high-yield debt market, that's more uh, concentrated in the energy space. Now, unfortunately, when you see, which we do believe that you will see a lot of defaults in the energy space because that commodity has dropped by over 70%, and your smaller corporations are going to eventually begin to start defaulting on their loans, and that's why you're seeing a lot of the stress in the high-yield market. And these high-yield bonds are going to be guilty by association. So even though the average weighting in the high-yield bond portfolio in energy is about 15%, Anytime you see any type of default risk, investors sell first and then sit back to evaluate the holdings in the portfolio. Uh, so you're right. There's going to be a lot of stress on the high-yield debt market, but mainly concentrated in the energy space. You know, but with that being said, it could create some terrific opportunities for long-term investors you know, going towards the end of next year. We continue to see the sell-off in energy as well as high-yield space. So would you recommend people get into high-yield bonds now that they've down to some extent, or you think there's more damage to come and they should stay away for the moment? I think there's more damage to come. Uh, you know, we haven't really seen a tremendous amount of defaults yet in the energy space. We anticipate to start to see that next year. Uh, they've been holding on for dear life, and now kind of to the point where they're starting to struggle financially, and I think that you'll have better entry points sometime next year in the high-yield space. So it's still too early uh, to make a reactive decision like that. So what should families do with their existing debt, mortgage debt, credit card debt, student loan, auto loan, even small business debt, uh, before interest rates rise further? What, what kind of moves should they make with their debts? Really, I think the biggest thing to do is to make sure that, I mean, keep in mind on how really low rates are based on history. I think when we look 10 and 20 years from now, we'll be looking back saying, my gosh, I can't believe we were able to get a 30-year loan at 3-point-something percent or 2-point-something percent. So I think the average household needs to make sure that they don't have any floating rate debt in their household. So your mortgages, make sure you lock them in for however many years, 15, 20, 30. Just make sure they're fixed rates and they can't adjust up. 
because that will allow you less risk from a total household income perspective when you know exactly what your expense will be on that debt moving forward. So having floating rate debt right now as a household, I think, is just uh, is silly to do when you can lock it in at historically low rates. Assuming the Fed does raise rates this week, do you think they'll? this is the first of many and they'll start raising rates several times in the next 12 months or so? No, I think they're going to be very dovish in the way they – I think the biggest key to Wednesday, if they raise rates, is going to be how they position it. And I think they're going to position it in a way so that way they don't scare and spook the markets. They're going to let everybody know that this is going to be a very slow and gradual move. So they're not going to raise rates every meeting next year. They're going to be very, very cautious in their approach because they don't want to disrupt things. And the economy is already, you know, it's not a robust economy by any means. So they're going to be very, very cautious about it. How is it that the Fed can be raising rates in the United States, but the Europeans, they just lowered their rates to minus 0.3% at the ECB. The Japanese have gone into negative rates. Uh, Lots of places around the world are lowering their rates when we're raising our rates. Why is it working that way? Well, I think they're a little bit, uh, when you take a look, you know, unfortunately, global economies don't all move up and down at the same time. We were being very aggressive in our uh, reduction in rates in 2008 when we hit our, had our financial crisis. The other countries weren't having that same crisis at that particular time. So they're basically going through the same cycle that we went through, and now we're on the upswing. So they're probably they're, you know, two or three years behind us from, from that cycle. So that's why you're seeing that right now. And you'll, I think you'll always see that globally. Again, it would be nice if everything moved up and down together, but that's just not the world that we're in today. What would you do with income-oriented investments like bonds, utilities, real estate investment trusts, MLPs, uh, interest-sensitive bonds, and bond surrogates in this environment? In this environment, I think when you're referring to your fixed income space, I think you really should be short-term. Uh, your longer-term investments, that are interest rate sensitive are going to have much more volatility with interest rate moves than short-term debt will. So I think the key is is to be short-term. Yes, you will get less yield, but it will provide you better opportunities over the long haul. So if you stay short-term, say say treasuries, for example. I mean, long treasuries, two, two, 10-year treasuries are maybe 2.3 or you know something a little over 2%, whereas short-term treasuries, maybe five years or less, would be half of 1%. So you're saying it's worth it to earn one and a half points less to be flexible and not have losses if rates go up. I really do think that that would be beneficial long term, anticipating that rates are going to trend up. I mean, we've been in a lower, we have been in a declining interest rate market environment for 30 years. Uh, so I think it's, you know, it's everything is a calculated risk. But I think, if anything, that we're going to be in a rising interest rate market environment for the foreseeable future. So that's bonds. How about Bond surrogates, utilities, REITs, other things like that, that you can't go short-term, would you stay in those kind of bond surrogates or not? Now, obviously, everyone's situation is going to be different, so I can't make a blanket statement for everyone. But generally speaking, those types of investments, uh, the real estate investment trust, I think you're going to have more interest rate sensitivity. But again, right now, I would... For if the income that is generating is enough to maintain the client standard of living, I wouldn't be overreact to a 25 basis point rate hike and start selling everything. I would just make sure that it's well balanced and that you're not too overweight a particular sector and provide yourself some liquidity so that way you can take opportunities 
when they present themselves. Now, for your clientele, which are retirees and pre-retirees, say you're retired, you built up a good amount of capital, and you need income to live off of. Uh, how can people survive on half of a point? Or you know, you're saying keep short. How are they going to get enough income to to live at a decent lifestyle? Well, that's been the big problem. Is what people have been forced to do, which I don't think is a good thing, is to take on more risk than they normally would, because the fixed rate investment world doesn't provide enough yield for them to live off of. So in order for them to do that, if they're going to take those low rates like we just discussed, they're going to dip into principal, which is not a good thing. So what you've seen, which may be indirectly one of the reasons why the market has had the run-up it's had in the last four and a half years, is investors have been forced to take risk that they normally wouldn't because the fixed interest rate space just isn't attractive enough for them. And that's why I think you've seen a lot of value stocks have the run that they've had over the last few years because investors have looked to those types of investments because there's nothing else out there for yield. Indeed. Okay, all right, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this half hour is Eddie Gabor. Uh, he is the co-founder of Key Advisors Group based in Delaware. Uh, their website is keyadvisorsgroupllc.com. We'll be back after this. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus, topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies. Now he's come to the Voice America Business Channel to help you and your business. Tune in to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show for information about starting and successfully running a profitable business. From the movers and shakers to great marketing screw-ups, you can't afford to miss a single edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, Tuesdays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Leadership is a vital skill set in today's competitive global economy. Being a leader is not enough. To succeed, you must optimize your performance and know how to imbue others in your organization with leadership skills. Practical, actionable leadership insights are the focus of Leadership Development News, hosted each Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, by Kathy Greenberg and Relly Nadler on the Voice America Business Channel. Doctors Greenberg and Nadler, who coach global leaders on how to be most effective, will share their insights and contacts. The path to leadership excellence begins here. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Eddie Gabor. Uh, He is the founder of Key Advisors Group based in Delaware. Their website, keyadvisorsgroupllc.com. Welcome back to the show, Eddie. Thank you. So let's talk oil prices. We've had a dramatic drop in oil. It's down to about $35 a barrel or so. 
Did you think that was going to happen? And, and what is the reason for this? What's going to happen to oil prices here? No, I don't think anyone would have predicted oil dropping, you know, over 70%. Uh, today it's stabilized at about $36 a barrel, but the oil market is going to be continue to be very, very volatile and could test lower levels than where we are now, which two years ago seemed, you know, unimaginable to go from $100 plus a barrel down into the 30s and possibly the 20s. So the biggest reason for the drop, which is a good thing, is it's a supply issue, not necessarily a demand issue. There's just a tremendous amount of supply on the marketplace right now, which is driving the price of oil down. And I think that anyone that expects a huge spike back in the short term are going to be sadly disappointed because I think lower oil prices are here to stay for a while, which overall should be a net positive to the overall economy because anytime you can drop the consumer's gas bill by 50% has got to be deemed positive. Now, people have been saying this for a while, that consumers are going to save all this money at the pump and they're going to go out and spend it. But in fact, what's been happening is the savings rate has been going up and people, for the most part, are not spending. It's been a pretty weak retail holiday season so far, for example. So when do you think that's going to change, that consumers are going to spend more of the money they're saving at the pump? Well, see, this is the fundamental breakdown that we have in our economy. So everyone is incurred, you know, we are basically a consumer-driven economy. And right now, as you said, what you pointed out that I don't hear many people talking enough about is the saving rates are actually increasing here in the U.S. And I think that trend is going to continue as well, too, which we should be celebrating the fact that people are being more prudent with their income and saving for their future instead of spending all of their disposable income. Uh, so if we are looking for these huge retail sales numbers because people are going to take all this extra money and spend it, I think we're going to be disappointed because, again, people are saving to accumulate wealth so they can retire one day, and they're becoming more, uh, they're be- making smarter decisions with their money. So the only way we're going to get the growth that we truly need in this economic environment, in my opinion, is to have some type of corporate tax reform that will cause corporations to take all this money that's sitting overseas and give them a reason to invest back into the U.S. Now, if we, demand is relatively slow, because the economy, as you said, consumers are very cautious about spending, even if you had them bring it back for tax reasons, would they invest a lot if they don't see a lot of demand uh, from consumers? Well, I think what you'll see is if you're able to bring that here, and now all of a sudden you have better-paying jobs because they build their factories here, and they start to pay, again, higher-paying jobs are in the economy, then people will still save percentage-wise the same amount of money they're saving now, but their disposable income number will still be higher, and that will filter into the economy. Uh, there's a lot of people in this un- in an unemployment number that came out last Friday that are underemployed. So the number isn't as strong as it may seem on the headlines. And, and how likely is it that you think we'll see that kind of corporate tax reform that would lower rates and allow companies to bring um, profits back without having a huge tax bill? You know, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic. I think we're at a point now that everyone has kind of recognized that this needs to be done. Unfortunately, I don't think you'll see it done for at least, it certainly won't get done before the election in November. I think we would be naive to think so, but I'm hopeful that they will do that uh, sometime after the election, because I think long term, that's really what our country needs to grow again instead of just simply depending upon families spending all their disposable income. We need businesses to spur growth here in the U.S. Now, oil prices, you say, are going to stay relatively low. In the long run, do you think oil prices will go back up, and how would you take advantage of the rebound in oil prices eventually? I think that over the long haul, 
oil prices will go back up. Now, how fast they will go up, you know, that's anyone's guess because there is a tremendous amount of supply on the marketplace. But as a long-term investor that's willing to take risk with a portion of their portfolio, to be able to start dabble, dab, uh, slowly get into a sector that's down over 70%, I think makes a, a lot of sense. You know, you look at certain uh, large oil companies that pay a nice dividend. You may not get the huge return in the short term, but again, most investors that we deal with are looking over the long haul. And I think as a long-term investor, if you begin to start dipping your toes into the water, into that space with the large cap companies, I think you'll be handsomely rewarded in the long run. So would you like the big integrated companies or oil exploration firms, ETFs? How would you play a rebound in oil? You know, I, I would use a combination of the ETFs and your larger caps. Like, for example, uh, and this is not a recommendation, but like ExxonMobil, for example. Okay, and again, everyone's situation is different. But I think if you focus, if you want to take risk and go into the energy space, going into companies like that, I think the likelihood of success are much higher and your default risk is much lower than if you try to speculate in a small uh, energy firm that may not make it through these treacherous times. So with the environment we've talked about, plunging oil prices, the Fed about to start raising interest rates, what kind of volatility should people expect going forward and how should they deal with that volatility? Well, I think the volatility that we have experienced this year is going to be the new normal where you will see 7 to 15% drops within a year in the marketplace. But with, if you have cash on the sidelines and you can take advantage of that volatility, the volatility can be your friend. So not being fully invested and taking too much risk with your portfolio will provide you some opportunities over the long haul. Uh, because when you see these volatile time periods, again, buying when it's uncomfortable to buy usually is when you get rewarded the most over the long haul. So how does that work psychologically with your clients? Say like in August, we had a big down drop in the market. Do your clients say, ah, the opportunity is here. Let me rush in and buy while things have just plummeted. Is that the way that works? No, you know, I wish it was that easy, you know, because we're still human beings at the end of the day. And it's very uncomfortable when everything you read in the news and the sentiment is just so, so negative uh, to be able to have everyone just say, sure, this is a terrific buying opportunity. Uh, because, again, I think the key, which is what you hit on, is the psychology behind investing. If you construct your portfolio in a way that you don't see the same type of volatility you have in the market, then these big dips won't cause you to make an emotional decision financially. If you're carrying a tremendous amount of risk and you see 15 or 20% swings in your net worth, that will cause anyone to lose sleep at night and maybe make some sales that you probably wouldn't have had you had a portfolio that was less volatile. So managing risk, I think, is one of the most important components that a retiree needs to do in their portfolio. A big part of people's investment income in retirement is Social Security. What is your outlook for Social Security, and should people count on it uh, in their retirement, or do you think it's going to be reduced one way or the other? I don't think it's going to be reduced. I think you can still count on it. I know there's an argument there, but I think what they'll do is raise the taxes that we pay, so raise the income limits for Social Security, and find ways to continue to fund it for future generations. So I don't think it's going to go away. I think they'll make the retirement age older for certain people, and they will, cost, they will raise the taxes on Social Security to try to fund it. Some people are even more worried about Medicare compared to Social Security. What is your financial outlook for Medicare? You know, the problem is, is it's such a big expense 
right now that I think it's hard because of how untransparent some of these things are to really, you know, I would like to think that it will always be there for retirees, you know, Social Security, Medicare. But medical costs are rising at drastic rates that I think that's one of the biggest concerns that I hear from an expense perspective is the medical cost. So, uh, and I truly don't know what the answer to that is, that we need to tame the expenses or we will have some issues there as well, too. It's just, you know, common sense that that will happen and the demographics of our country. A lot of retired people are asked to give money to either their kids or their grandkids, grandkids for college maybe, kids for down payments on homes or other reasons. Is that something you think is a good idea, or, or should grandparents kind of stay, keep the money for themselves? You know, that's really a personal decision. I mean, I hear from clients that gift to their children or grandchildren that uh, if they have enough money to have the luxury to do that, that they enjoy, they would rather see them enjoy it when they need it versus passing away and not seeing that enjoyment and helping their children and grandchildren. So if you're fortunate enough to be in a financial situation that you can help your children and grandchildren and you have a close family, uh, then by all means, I, I think it's great that uh, you help your children or grandchildren get off on the right foot financially. But do you think some people go too far and, and strap themselves uh, to help their kids and grandkids? Certainly, I'm sure. Uh, and sometimes you can enable them as well, too. You know, uh, you don't just want to give out handouts uh, to your children uh, and make life too easy for them. And so I think when you do gifting, you do have to do it strategically in a way that you don't gift too much because once you gift it, <laughs> you can't get it back. Uh, so you don't want to lose your entire net worth due to gifting to your children and grandchildren. So just like anything, I think you have to be prudent in how aggressive you do that. And how about giving gifts to charities and colleges and churches and places like that? Is that a good idea to do like a charitable remainder trust or a way to get into some of these annuities where you're going to uh, give the money to the institution in the end? You know, the charitable remainder trust, many times you'll see that where uh, individuals use that for highly appreciated assets to get some tax benefits. And, again, I think you're talking about uh, it depends on the individual's net worth on whether or not it's worth it to go through the expense of developing these types of trusts. Uh, certainly you see people who gift to their church and, and to different financial, uh, I'm sorry, charitable organizations frequently, but as far as developing these charitable remainder trusts, many times, again, we see that in the highly appreciated assets to get some tax benefits. So it's definitely a niche market for a certain net worth of clientele. In about a minute or so we have left, kind of summarize your view of where we stand here as the Federal Reserve is about to make a move on interest rates, oil prices plummeting, what people should be doing going forward in the next year. Well, I think uh, overall, I think it's going to be a very bumpy ride for 2016. You're going to see a tremendous amount of volatility. I think right now is a great time to evaluate your risk tolerance and have a clear understanding on how much risk you're willing and able to take financially and make sure that your portfolio matches that risk tolerance. Because this volatility and this bumpy ride, you know, can cause you to lose some sleep if you're taking too much risk. So make sure you evaluate the risk tolerance of your portfolio and that it fits you and your personality. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this half hour has been Eddie Gabor. Uh, he is the co-owner at Key Advisors Group, LLC, based in Delaware. You can find out more about him at his website, keyadvisorsgroupllc.com. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, Eddie. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thanks very much. And we'll be back in the next uh, segment uh, with another guest. Stay around.
stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in government, the legal arena, and the business world impacts your business every day. And we're going to take you on a behind-the-scenes tour of it all. Each week, we'll bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers and leaders. Squire Patton Boggs will be your guide as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join us for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Channel each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog, Press Pass? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at VAPressPass.com. That's VAPressPass.com. VA Press Pass by Voice America. All access, all the time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. For the second half hour, my guest is Winnie Sun. She's the managing director and founding partner at Sun Group Wealth Partners uh, based in California. Welcome to the show, Winnie. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks for having me. So just start with a little bit of your background uh, financially and how you formed this firm and what kind of clientele you deal with. Sure. Uh, like you mentioned, uh, I am co-founder at Sun Group Wealth Partners here in Irvine. And uh, we, my team and I started in, I've been in the business since the late 90s. We started at Smith Barney and started our own firm about five years ago. Most of our clients are uh, mostly on the West Coast here, so we do handle, my background prior to this was in entertainment. So a lot of our clients are in the movie television industries as well as the press industry. Very good. So let's kind of look, take a broad view of where we are in the economy right now before we get to some of the specific areas. Uh, wh- what do you see happening with the Fed Reserve and where the economy is going, oil prices, all the things you've been hearing us talk about? Well, you know, Jordan, as you know, a lot of scary things in the news right now and clients are a little skittish. Um, we hear about oil, we're hearing about rates being increased, and and on any given day, we hear political reform as well, right? So I think the main thing we're focused on is long-term growth and where we want our clients positioned well, and to take a look at the number one thing, which is managing their earnings and managing their expenses. Okay, so let's take one of those at a time. So what, what can people do to manage their earnings in a better way than they're doing before they reach you? Well, uh, the main thing they want to do is make sure that, number one, they have a job and they keep a job. Uh, fortunately, here on the West Coast, especially with technology and entertainment, that hasn't been as much of a uh, problem. But there are companies here, a lot of companies have been doing, we call 2015 the year of the buyout. So a lot of companies have been downsizing and some of the companies have been moving out of state. So that has certainly 
has its effects. So number one you want to do is keep your job. And those of you who feel that you don't have quite as much saved up for retirement, it's probably a very good idea to look about supplementing your income. And so there's a lot of ways that you can do that. Um, so there's a lot of freelance opportunities now, um, be able to work online after hours. But anything you can do, especially around the holidays, to kind of add a little bit buffer to your budget. And then on the expense side, what are some of the key expenses that people can save some significant money on that you can help them with? Well, you know, from expense side, typically the biggest expense for most people is obviously their, their home or where they're, they're living. And so whether it be rent or their mortgage, that's an area that we take a look and see if we can, we can downsize, we can refinance their mortgage. Uh, but most importantly, to just get their their day to day expenses down, and especially now, right now around the holidays, everyone feels just this pressure to spend, and it's really not necessary. Um, we can have a really beautiful holiday and still spend quite modestly, and that's important as we finish up the, the 2015 and go into the new year. Next year, 2016, it will probably be even more important than ever to really hone down and keep your expenses um, tight. So there's various areas of personal finance, you're an expert, and I just want to go through some of those. The first one is your FICO score, which is the Fair Isaac credit score. What can people do to improve their FICO score that they may not be aware of? Well, the FICO score is like your, your, your present-day report card, right? It just shows creditors and banks and even the, the auto dealership how responsible you are with finances. So there are, you, you definitely want to keep track of your score. That's my, probably my number one tip. And you can do so every year. Every single one of us gets a free credit report should we choose to, to request it. And you should request it. It's at annualcreditreport.com is where you can get your own credit score and your own credit report. You want to make sure that everything looks right. The other thing you want to do is you want to pay your bills on time. Super important. Uh, if you do miss a payment, just get current and stay current and make sure you continue that path. The other thing is you don't want to, you, you definitely don't want to have your credit checked too often because that does negatively impact your credit too. And I always suggest to my clients not having something in, uh, looked at, looking at your credit for more than twice a month. So, for example, let's say you're car shopping or you're house shopping or you're shopping for a new apartment. I think it's a good idea to have your credit score and report printed out yourself and then negotiate with whoever you're working with. Uh, say, let's say a, a car. If you're looking at three or four dealerships, you show them your credit score and what is the best loan or lease you can get given my score is such and such. And then once you've done all the negotiations, then at that point, let them run your credit. But that should be the very last moment. Just to clarify and, something you said, on the annualcreditreports.com, you get your credit report. You do not get your credit score as part of that. That's, that's your full report. The score you have to get other places Credit Karma, or there's other places. But those three reports from the three agencies are the report, not the score, just right, to be clear. Right, thank you. Thank uh, you. And then also on the applying, if you apply for credit, like at a car dealership or mortgage, that's considered a hard inquiry on in your credit. But if you actually just take a look at your credit, that's a soft inquiry. That does not affect your score. So you, should, you shouldn't apply for a lot of credit in a short period of time because that's what's going to hurt your score. Absolutely. And you want to pay off that debt and pay it off as quickly as you possibly can. Another area I want to mention is IRAs. So 
what are the pros and cons of doing a Roth IRA, which is growing tax-free, compared to a traditional IRA where it's tax-deferred and you may or may not get somewhat of a tax deduction up front, which you're not going to get from a Roth IRA? Right, absolutely. Well, I always call the Roth IRA the golden egg scenario. So basically, as you know, the Roth IRA is just you get to contribute 5500 into an IRA each year as long as you have an income. So if you're over 50, you get a stepped-up bonus and you get to put an extra $1,000 into your IRA. So the 2015 and 2016 contributions don't change, so those amounts stay level. But the Roth works like this. You put in money that's already been taxed, and it grows 100% tax-free if used for retirement. And retirement is defined at 59 and a half and further. But one of the biggest benefits of the Roth, as you know, is the flexibility. The flexibility of, of, of be able to take from your Roth IRA at any point, any time, the contributions that you put into it. So say you put 5500 in this year. And next year, the, the count's grown to 6000 The 5500 you initially put in, you can take out for any reason with no penalty and no taxes because you've already paid taxes on that money. And if you don't touch it, then the entire sum grows tax-free as long as you take it out after 59 and a half. So huge benefits, especially if you're still younger. Um, and you have time on your side, and you are looking for a long-term, comfortable retirement. Um, also, those of you who, let's say, for example, have higher income, because the Roth IRA has some income limitations, meaning if you make too much money, they may not allow you to make a contribution in directly into a Roth. But after 2010, now, if even if you have high income, you can make a non-deductible IRA contribution into a regular traditional IRA. And then later on, you can simply do a Roth IRA conversion. So even if you think that you, your income exceeds that limit uh, or you just make too much money, uh, you certainly can still take advantage of the Roth. So that's not a disadvantage. But one of the biggest differences that I think that you should consider a Roth versus a traditional is that even if you exceed the age of 70 and a half, or let's just say 71 and on, you can continue to make contributions into a Roth as long as you have income. So nowadays, a lot of us are just working a lot longer and harder, and, and uh, we get to continue to contribute into an IRA through the Roth ongoing, which is helpful for those of you who are just great savers, because for many of you, like myself, I, you know, as a parent, we might want to transfer some of these uh, monies over to our children. And by putting it into the Roth versus a traditional IRA, we've now changed the money to give us tax-free distributions, not only for our lives, but also the lives of our children. It has to be earned income, even over 70 and a half. It cannot be income from dividends or Social Security, something like that. It has to be a salary right. income to like be able a to do that. Right. 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 Exactly. Very good. Uh, and then the other thing about Roth IRAs, you do not have the required minimum distribution at age yeah. 70 and a half that you'd have with traditional, so you can keep it growing a lot longer, the, the full amount. Absolutely. Yes. Okay, another area I wanted to talk about was the sandwich generation. So a lot of people are growing up, their parents are living older, and in many cases not having enough money, sometimes even need to move back with the kids, while the younger generation is going through college, having a huge amount of student loan debt, maybe moving back with the parents as well. 
What, what do you recommend to people kind of caught in the sandwich generation problem these days? Well, if you're a sandwich generation, you know, a lot of us are in our 30s and 40s, and we're taking care of kids and taking care of our parents. That's what's defined as a sandwich generation. So a couple things that you can do. First off, you know that, especially if you're, you saw your parents in this situation. I saw my parents this way. They took care of my sister and I, and they took care of my grandparents. And if you're in that situation, um, you, there's a good chance that you're going to have to do the same for your parents. And, and come back to it. So you want to plan for that financially because it can be a huge financial burden. We find that most of the sandwich generation tends to be female and they tend to be, um, they tend to have to work no more than part-time when they have to go ahead and uh, be caregivers for both populations, both their parents and their children. And about 60 some percent of elderly are actually cared by, by a family member. So this will not only put financial havoc and strain on your present situation, but also in your future retirement. So you want to start saving. And if your family or your parents are able to qualify and afford long-term care, it does make very smart sense to go ahead and explore that option. At what age is it appropriate to get a long-term care policy? I like talking to my clients about long-term care in their early 50s. Um, that's usually when they're in good health still, and because they're still somewhat younger, uh, the, the premiums aren't too high. So anywhere, I would say you should start exploring the option probably around 46 through early 50s. Because in many cases, those premiums have gone up, and uh, some companies have dropped out of long-term care insurance altogether. Yes, yes. There's some, but there's alternative plans I think are really attractive, and that's so, so some of the plans that we talk to our younger clients about. You know, um, typic, typical long-term care works a lot like car insurance. So you pay it every single month, but if you don't get in a car accident, then you basically that money just disappears. But there's now newer policies available, and they've been around for a little while now, so I shouldn't say they're new. Long-term care policies that will retain their value. So hypothetically, if you were to put a set amount, let's say 50000 into a pool, an account pooled for long-term care slash life insurance, and you didn't use any of the long-term care benefits because you didn't need them, you could still get all your initial premium back. So the money will always come back to you or your family at some point. And I like that because if you qualify and you purchase a policy like that and it's in place, if legislation changes or new plans come that are better than your pre-existing plan, you can always make a change over to the new, but at least you're covered and uh, you have some, some sort of quality care. Very good. We're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Winnie Sun. Uh, she is the managing director at uh, the Sun Group Wealth Partners based in Irvine, California. Uh, her website is winniesun.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 
What if every day was a good day for business? Because every decision you made was the best choice. What if you could receive regular input from credible sources and could acquire all the precise information you need, exactly when you need it, so you can make the right decision every single time? Because There's More challenges you to make better decisions. Join Laura Ellis every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel and learn how to think differently for better decisions, better business. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this half hour is Winnie Sun. Uh, she is the managing director and founding partner at Sun Group Wealth Partners based in Irvine, California. You can find out more about her at her website, winniesun.com. Welcome back to the show, Winnie. Thank you, Jordan. So living trusts, uh, when is it appropriate to set up a living trust and how should one do it and what's the reason for doing so? Yeah, absolutely. So living trust, you might hear interchange a lot with the words estate planning. It's all pretty much the same thing. Really important. Everybody actually should have a living trust or estate plan, whether you're, you're – your estate be large or small. And the reason it is, is I always say it's really, if you have anybody in your life that you love, you need to have this done. Because what it does, it takes a lot of the hard decisions off the table for them and you get to choose. So there's a couple things that you want to do. You want to find out how much you have in terms of assets, how much do you own in terms of money and material goods, and then you decide who inherits that on the day that you are no longer here. The other thing that's very important that I think, I feel like as a parent for me was the most difficult decision was if something were to happen to my spouse and I, who would care for our children? And it wasn't just caring for them financially, but who would on a day-to-day basis take care of them? That needs to be listed and is decided in by your living trust. So that can be two different people, one who takes care of them and one who financially distributes funds to them. You can do the same for pets. You know, it, it can it can go pretty wide. And the most important thing that uh, you want to think about too is these are, these are decisions that need to be made on the day that you can't decide for yourself. So we're not saying that you necessarily need to pass away for the living trust mm-hmm. to take effect, because you could be just in a situation where you can't make the decision for yourself. So there has to be someone responsible financially to handle your finances for you handle your family members, and to decide on, uh, or I shouldn't decide on, but how to distribute the the things that you've accumulated and who they go to. So that's really, I would say, the heart of the living trust. And then there's a lot of financial and tax medical, you know, business planning aspects that can get a little bit more um, detailed. And so it's a good idea to seek professional advice on this. And I highly recommend that you have a uh, professional estate planning attorney help you with this process. Is it also important to have a living trust as a way to avoid probate so that assets can pass directly to your beneficiaries? Yes, yes. Thank you for reminding That's actually a very important piece of the pie. So if you don't have a living trust and your estate is a fair amount of value, there's a good 
chance that your family will be subject to probate should you not have spent the time to have a living trust completed. Okay, another area you wanted to talk about was student loans impacting getting a mortgage. Now, people are coming out of college with an average of $30,000 in debt, many people way more than that. How is that impacting young people's ability to get mortgages? Yeah, that's such a good question. You know, we're working on this study called the Millennial Study at our group. And what we're doing is we are actually researching it and studying the financial habits of today's millennial, which is someone between the ages of 18 and 35. And I bring that up only because in most cases, a lot of the young people affected by student loans are our millennial population. And interesting enough, you know, Besides credit card debt, student debt is one of their biggest headaches. And this does have tremendous impact on getting a mortgage. We also learned, you know, I was on a financial news station recently and they said, well, you know, young people aren't interested in purchasing a home. And I found that to be obviously not the case. We interviewed millennials all across the nation. And by an overwhelming majority, almost 70% of young people did want to purchase a home in the next 10 years. So you really want to make sure that your credit obviously is in good shape because we had just talked earlier about your FICO score. The other thing is you want to pay attention to your, your debt-to-income ratio. So your student loan is part of that debt. So you want to make sure your income helps to offset so that your debt-to-income ratio isn't uh, too poor. There are a couple things that you can do. Obviously, you want to try to pay off your student loan as quickly as you can. And if you can't, well, there's other things you can do too. You can obviously increase your income, which is easier said than done, but you can take on additional shifts. You can do some freelancing on the site, whatever it takes to bring in additional income. And you want to make sure that you don't add to your debt. So you don't want to get more credit card debt or anything like that when you're looking to purchase a home. So ideally, mortgage lenders prefer a debt-to-income ratio of less than 36% is what we found. Some lenders in special situations will approve on a higher debt-to-income ratio, but you want to make sure you're in a situation where you can not only buy the home, but you can keep the home and continue to pay those mortgage payments. So those are just a, a few things that I would, would recommend you doing. If you can get some help from family members, that would be obviously wonderful. Uh, again, th that will also have to, any, any sort of loans would still have to be reported, but at least that gives you a little bit longer time horizon to pay. If you have a lot of student loans, whatever, 50000 debt or more, which is very common these days, do you think it's appropriate for people just to wait and not get a mortgage and not buy a home until they get that student loan debt down to a more manageable level? Mm, absolutely. I think it's a great idea. It's very, very difficult. It's like, it's like swimming with a, a hurt leg, right? So it's, it's great to be able to pay off some of that debt and get a situation where it's very, very manageable and then look to purchasing a home. It will just give you less pressure. Plus, for many young people, when they're looking for work and uh, they're starting their career, a lot of times they don't even know exactly where they want to settle down. And those decisions usually come a little later in life. I know uh, we read a study that a lot of times people are looking to purchase a home when they're thinking about having children. So you have a little bit of time. There's no rush, but get yourself strong financially, and it'll give you a lot more options when it comes to securing that mortgage instead of struggling. Another big uh, decision people make is cars. When does it make sense to buy? When does it make sense to lease? And what are the pros and cons of that? And how, how should people get the best deal when buying cars? 
Well, it is December, right? So it's holiday season. So a lot of people are looking to buy cars and lease cars right now. And there's not there's not an exact de uh, defined way to decide whether you should buy or lease. But I will say that uh, my recommendation is always, if you can, to buy and to buy used. Uh, because cars as we will agree, are an expense and not an investment. So typically, as soon as you buy the car, it depreciates. So if you can buy used uh, and you hold on to that car long term, it usually makes a, a strong impact for you financially. Uh, if there's benefits for you to lease and that was something that you should discuss with your tax professional, then you can consider doing so, but be very uh, mindful and careful about the terms of that lease because uh, they can be somewhat complicated. They're not impossible to understand, but it is a good idea to speak with someone who has leased cars in the past and has done so a couple of times and speaking with your tax professional before you make either decision is a good idea. So we've talked about a lot of different areas of personal finance. Do you deal only with people in the Southern California area or all over the country if they're interested in working with you and your group? Oh, thank you. We work with clients all across the United States um, from business owners to small families to individuals. So we are very much open uh, and interested to work with people of all stages of their financial lives. So maybe just describe the process. If somebody comes to you, what is the process you go through in figuring out what they need and how to help them? Well, we believe that the first and foremost is that you should start with a financial plan. A lot of times, I'm actually writing a piece for Forbes right now called The, the Seven Things You Should Never Ask Your Financial Advisor. And one of the things that a lot of people ask us is, so what's your return? And I always say, well, coming to an advisor and saying what's your return is a lot like when you have an open piece of land and... Uh, the first thing you want to say is, I want to make sure, how much does that red sofa cost? And so the question I have is, well, where's the roof and where's, where are the walls and where's the restroom going to go? Because without a financial plan, picking investments isn't going to do too much for your portfolio. So you want to start with a financial plan or a retirement plan to find out where you are today and where you want to be later on so that you have something to gauge success from and to make sure that you're on track. So we start every client with a free financial plan, and that gives us a, a roadmap to get them to where they need to be in the future. So um, with us, usually the first meeting will take a couple hours, and uh, we, we communicate heavily uh, the way that they want to, whether it be phone, uh, text, email, whatever, social media, whatever is most convenient to you is how we will uh, be there for you. And how do you deal with psychological differences? Some people are more risk-oriented, some people are more safety-oriented, particularly if there's a disagreement between the spouses. Oh, that's very common. Um, and it's okay to disagree. That's actually many times healthy uh, because you look at things in a different way. But what we do do is for each spouse, we do this individually, we have them fulfill out a, what we call a risk questionnaire. It's not challenging. It asks questions to get to the root of how you really feel about risk. And from that, we can gauge what's appropriate for you and what's not appropriate for you. And we take a pretty, much, a pretty conservative approach. We believe in taking our time with each client. So there's no rush to invest, but there, there is a rush to do it properly. So you want to get that plan done, take a look at your risk tolerance, and then we will put together a plan for the next few months. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this, hour, this half hour has been Winnie Sun. She's the managing director and founding partner at Sun Group Wealth Partners, based in Irvine, California. You can find out more about her at her website, winniesun.com. Thanks so much for being on The Money Answer Show, Winnie. 
Thank you, Jordan, for having me. Really appreciate it. Thanks again, and we'll be back with another edition of the Money Answers Show next week. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.